There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Forma Podcast, featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders that are carefully contemplating the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture. I'm David Kern. On today's episode, we're featuring an interview that I conducted with Dr. Jeffrey Henderson, who is the William Goodwin Aurelio Professor of Greek Language and Literature at Boston University. But he's also the general editor of the Loeb Classical Library. My guess is that since you are listening to this podcast, you at least know about the Loeb Classical Library. You probably have several copies of their books in your own library or in your school library, or um, at least you have access to them. If you don't, then you probably need to remedy that. You'll recognize Loeb Classics by their distinctive pocket-ish size shape and their green and red colors. Green for Greek classics, red for the Latin classics. I've long wanted to chat with Dr. Henderson because I love these little additions. I remember, I, I tell the story in the podcast, but I remember when I was a kid, going to Barnes & Noble with my dad and choosing out one of the very first books I ever bought. And it was a, a Loeb classic of Caesar's Civil Wars. And I still have that on my shelf in my bedroom. Uh, the dust jacket is gone, but uh, the book is still there and slightly marked up. It's got my seven-year-old, well, probably 10 or 11-year-old cursive signature in there. Um, so I bought that in December of probably like 1998 or something like that. But these are heirloom books. They're books that people pass on. They're books that people are proud to have. Um, they're even books that, as Dr. Henderson mentions in this podcast, people use just to decorate their offices or homes because they're so beautiful. So Dr. Henderson and I chatted for a long while about things like the evolution of a translation in the Loeb Classics, how they choose what to, what to publish, uh, how they choose when to republish something, the history of the Loeb Classics, including uh, the derivation of the project, the story of the founder, um, and much, much more. I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. Uh, if you like conversations like this and you like some of the content that you're hearing on this podcast and over at formerjournal.com, don't forget that you can subscribe. Head over to formerjournal.com and click on the subscribe button and you will get access to our quarterly journal as well as our weekly subscriber emails. Each week, we'll be emailing to all of our subscribers a book review or a conversation or an interview uh, or an essay uh, that is a subscriber exclusive. And of course, each winter, spring, summer, and fall, we will be mailing out hard copies of 
of exclusive print content. We do have a few things that are web exclusives as well that are available on our website at formerjournal.com. And this week for Thanksgiving, we actually have a preview of our winter issue with a piece called Are the Culinary Arts Liberal Arts, which was written by my friend and our reviews editor, Sean Johnson. So if you want to preview this winter issue that's coming up in January, you can head over to formerjournal.com and click on the lead piece there. But with that, let's kick it over to my conversation with Jeffrey Henderson, editor of the Loeb Classical Library. Enjoy and happy Thanksgiving. We know a little bit about Loeb's interest in philanthropy, right? So yeah. Loeb, the library was founded out of his, his love of the classics and his, um, I, I read somewhere that he said something about how it, it, even in his time, there was a sort of ignorance about the humanities, even a sense that people were ignoring them altogether. And so his interest yeah. in helping preserve them. And so he donated a lot of money to do that. And that's, and then ultimately hired editors to work with him. Is that, is that the way it works? Yes. Um, in uh, about 1910, he decided to go ahead with the idea of the library because he thought that humanities were being more and more neglected in favor of more practical subjects. Uh, it sounds very much like concerns of today. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> and, yeah uh, and he thought that um, that the treasures of the ancient world, Greek and Latin uh, literature, uh, could be better known to the general public and uh, that he wanted to find a way to put these in the hands of anybody who wanted to read them, uh, but also um, to keep the originals alive too. So yeah. he had the idea of the chasing translations. Uh, the translations would be the most important thing, but uh, he also wanted the originals to be right next to them so that uh, readers could see both and maybe be inspired to look at the Latin and Greek or to learn Latin and Greek. Um, mm. It was the only philanthropy that he put his own name to. Uh, mm. So he considered it very important. Um, he founded a lot of other things, including the Juilliard School, which people don't know, um, but he didn't put his name on any of them. Um, <clears throat> so the library was important to him. and. Um, he eventually endowed it in his will. He endowed the library so that it would, uh, if it weren't financially successful, it would continue. Hmm. Was his, I mean, was he a scholar himself or was he just someone who, who loved the things and wanted to give um, an opportunity for other people who maybe didn't consider them scholars, themselves scholars, but to be able to still, experience these great works or was he actually was he a scholar that knew these languages uh, that could have been a translator himself yes he was uh, he was a uh, harvard class of 1888 and he had uh, studied greek and latin and classical archaeology uh, he came from the famous low banking family so his family was wealthy and he was expected to assume his position in the firm uh, after he graduated, he did contemplate an academic career, but he was discouraged by his own professors um, because he was Jewish. And at that time, uh, uh, university careers for Jews were pretty rare. And also his family pressured him not to um, desert the family to come back and work for the bank. Uh, but throughout his life, uh, he pursued scholarly interests. He collected antiquities. Uh, he translated several uh, works of scholarship 
uh, from uh, French and German. Hmm. And uh, he was also a gifted musician, a cellist. Hmm. Uh, and he had periodic uh, uh, anxiety episodes where he would take leaves from the bank and go to his villa in uh, Bavaria at Murnau um, to recuperate. And that, that's when he <laughs> he spent his time on things like the Loeb Library and collecting antiquities. That's a nice luxury to have. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, that's where his heart really was. He didn't really like banking that much, but he did it. Um, and uh, But he really liked giving the money away to humanistic purposes uh, and also medicine. Uh, his major philanthropies were medicine, music, and uh, and the Loeb Library. So was the, was the concept of the facing pages with the original, the Greek or the Latin on one side, and then the translation on the opposite page, was that his... Con- did he conceive of that? No. Um, there had been prior examples of that. In fact, going back to the Renaissance. So it wasn't an entirely new idea. It was new in the Anglophone world. Okay, I got it. Okay. And, and the concept of the translation as an artistic representation of the original, of the facing original, was Loeb's. Uh, he insisted okay. that the translation be itself uh, worth reading all by itself as a, a work of art rather than simply as a, a trot or a, um, an explanatory translation uh, for people reading the Latin and Greek. Hmm. What about the what about the you know the green for the Greek and the Latin uh, the red covers for the for the Latin was that something that he conceived of or because it's funny when yep. you you go to a bookstore you go to Barnes and Noble or you there's lots of people who post you know uh, Loeb classics on social media there's there's like a hashtag for it and people are very proud of their collections and you immediately they're immediately distinguishable between the Latin and the Greek and you know we have probably a hundred in our hundred or 150 in our office. And they're so, they're so distinguishable. It's a genius idea. I think it's such a simple thing, but a great idea. That was his, yeah. that was his idea. Yeah. He designed the, uh, the trim of the volumes mm. himself. He wanted, he wanted them to be small enough, uh, to carry in a coat pocket mm. and the, the green for Greek and red for Roman. Uh, it's always been, thought that he picked them simply uh, for Greek and Roman that way. Uh, but a young researcher now is, who's working in the archives told me a couple of weeks ago that she suspects that maybe it was just an accident. I don't believe her, but we'll see what she comes up with. Anyway, huh. <laughs> um, he, did, he, did, he did design the, the volumes, and he also specified that they be um, uh, as inexpensive as possible, that they should be sold at the lowest price um, at cost, basically. Uh, And if they did ever make a profit, that all the profits would go to uh, fellowships for classical scholars anywhere in the world, regardless of race, creed, sex, and so forth. So, um, Does that that free... You as an editor of the series, and and your, you know, the editors who came before you, is that freeing that you don't have to worry yeah. about certain business side it's of things? In, absolutely, it's it's ingenious. Yeah, um, because the the library actually belongs to the the Loeb 
Classical Library Foundation, okay. which is what he endowed. And Harvard University Press, since 1989, publishes the Loeb for us. It publishes it for the foundation. Um, but uh, the foundation decides what is going to be in the library and whether it's going to be a new edition or a revised edition or a replaced edition. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, the profits that we, uh, the press takes its cut to produce the volumes and to um, recover its losses and to make some profit on the library. Mm-hmm. Um, but the prices of all the volumes is fixed at $26 currently. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, money that comes in beyond that, which is quite substantial now. Um, the foundation awards in fellowships and scholarships every year. Uh, and that that's, it. in other words, what the books make beyond the, what we, we uh, hire the press to publish them for goes right into the endowment. Hmm. And the return on endowment gives us the, the fellowships and so forth. So it's quite a virtuous arrangement. It keeps the press out of our hair in a way, because we decide, being, uh, I can decide, along with my executive trustee, the two of us make all the decisions, um, mm-hmm. what to publish. And sometimes the press tells us, you've got to be crazy, that's not going to sell. <laughs> and we we just say, it, A, we think it will sell, and B, even if it doesn't, it needs to be in the library. And yeah. uh, huh. the sales of the most popular things, like Homer, will will cover um, Hippocrates is uh, <laughs> diseases. Hmm. I do have questions for you about how you determine what to what to publish and and when. But before, I, I'm curious if you know, do you have origin the the very very first editions from from what night was it nineteen the nineteen teens is that when it was? In nineteen twelve, the first ones came out. Okay. Do you have any 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 very very first editions around? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's another good question uh, because no one actually has kept them all uh, because the press that first started to publish them, Putnam and Sons, uh, then gave over to Heinemann and Sons and then to Harvard. Uh, but the archives of those presses are not complete. And some of those early editions uh, are still in print. Um, and they've gone through, you know, as many as 15 printings, uh, and, uh, and some of them have been revised and when they're revised, the earlier version of it is discontinued. Mm. Um, so I don't know if there is such a thing as a complete Loeb library with Mm. all of the volumes that were ever published in it. Mm. I read that some of them were even destroyed what by a by a ship by a german ship during the yes. world war ii is that right or world war one yeah world war world war ii world war. Uh, torpedoed okay. uh and uh oh yeah there and and some were destroyed by um uh, as excess inventory by uh the conglomerate that took over heinemann mm. um that's uh and and they're they're collected uh, there's some rarities um, that are collected. There was an experiment at some point to um, put blue covers on some of them. Hmm. And that, that wasn't adopted. And in fact, it was forbidden by the bequest 
Globe's bequest. Um, and so that didn't get very far. But those volumes, which were supposed to be destroyed, uh, actually got into circulation, and they're pretty rare now. Uh, <laughs> huh. uh, so just as a bibliophilic collector's item, yeah, uh, the library has a history. Um, and it's used for, for decorative purposes, too. People bought, uh, have bought it for... Uh, because they like the colors and yeah. uh, to put them in bookcases as decoration. Martha Stewart, for instance, bought a, a whole <laughs> library. And, and, um, I wonder if she reads them. Martin, well, well she, she used to use the Greek ones to decorate her daughter-in-law's kitchen. I, I've, I've seen people who put them more front and center on their mantle and things like that at Christmas time. <laughs> Seems like seems like a, I mean I guess you might as well right it's kind of a kind of an unfortunate uh, way of thinking about books but do you so what was the first well, we don't yeah yeah what was the first uh, book published in the in the library uh, Apollonius of Rhodes really is volume one um, Loeb just published them as the editors finished them okay and 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 numbered them from number one onwards. And there are 538 of them now. Um, about a quarter of the library has been replaced. Um, that is, uh, original volume one of Apollonius of Rhodes is still volume one, numbered low classical library one, but it's in a new edition of just a few years old. Uh, and the but we kept the number, so it, it's hard to tell. You know what is in the library now is as uh, opposed to what it was in the library before because the, the numbers are the same and the various degrees of revision are not apparent just to look at the, the volumes. Because every time that one of them is reprinted, uh, we take the opportunity to correct it and uh, mm -hmm. supplement it a little bit on a scale from you know major overhaul to tweaking here and there. Um, it's one of the interesting features of this kind of a thing where you have a collection that doesn't go out of print, that all the, all the books stay in print forever until they're replaced or revised. Is there, are there any, uh, any translations that you, that you are especially fond of that you think that, that, that the library has just pulled off perfectly? Yeah, I mean, aside from my own. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you can say your own if you think if you'd like to. <laughs> well, I do. I do like my own um, of Aristophanes. Um, you know, they're all different because the authors are so different. Yeah. So, what what you would like to see in in one translation, like a, of a of Aeschylus um, might be different uh, from uh, Galen. You know, for Galen, you want, we have, Galen's always been done by surgeons who are also classicists. Hmm. And uh, because really you need, you need a surgeon, someone to understand. So people that read Galen want a very precise and accurate translation of what Galen was talking about. Whereas, a tragedy or an epic, something very literary and poetic would 
needs to be faithful to the facing original. It can't go too far off the reservation, but um, it needs to give sort of a flavor of the original. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to do. Um, but but I like many of our trans, uh, current translations. It's hard to tell about the old ones because the idiom is so different from mm. First World War era to now. Um, for poetry, the, the flowery Fane and Twain school was still considered an artistic idiom. Uh, so some of those old translations now seem terribly dated. Um, but at the time, they were considered, you know, good good English. <laughs> <laughs> now they're just very stilted. <laughs> so who knows what, what translations I like today are going to seem like in another century. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do you, are there? Do you find that because of that, because of the um, the way the idioms evolve, that you that you have to go back and redo them every now and then? I mean, is that a priority for you, or do you sort of take pride in the fact that you um, have some of these volumes that 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 make use of an sort of uh, you know more um, an idiom that would have appealed more to a previous generation, but it still preserves something of that generation, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Well, no, actually, we aim for a contemporary audience. So old-fashioned translations, dated translations, are a criterion for us to replace the volume. Okay. Because what we're looking for is to continue Loeb's mission of making these exciting and available Mm. um, to humanists of today. Uh, there's an argument about this in the press and among scholars of, you know, the the Loeb Library translations are historical monuments in a way, um, and and we should archive them. Uh, we're online now; the library's online, fully searchable, um, and a decision was made not to put the older editions up there, uh, but only the current ones. Um, so when when a volume is replaced it is gone from the library and the new one replaces it, same number. And, uh, and what happens to the original? Well, it just goes into uh, the out of print books, you know, it dies. So um, I would like to really capture all those books before they disappear and and make them available for students of translation. Mm. Um, but, But I think, but for the moment, I think that Loeb's vision and purpose in his bequest needs to be honored, that um, that people alive today who don't have other means of encountering these works and who might want to do so in this fashion should be the, we should cater to them and, and not make them read things. I mean, some of these earlier translations are unreadable now. <laughs> uh, they really, they, they have to be... Uh, they have to be retired and you know we we replace them uh we have a list of criteria and we have a list of the volumes that need revision or replacement uh, and then the difficulty is finding someone to do that because it has to be it's always been the same editor of the greek and latin text who translates them we don't want to get one person doing the Greek and Latin and the other person doing the translation uh, because they need to be tightly 
uh, integrated, the same person needs to express what he or she uh, thinks is an English version of these things. So um, <clears throat> sometimes you have to wait quite a while to find the right person. Mm. Even though we need to replace it, we don't want to just get anybody to do it. Mm. Uh, so we have a list of these, and I keep a, my executive trustee and I keep an ear to the ground to see who's working on things and, and what we might, uh, when we might uh, ask somebody to do it. Hmm. It strikes me that there are, you know, new translations of, you know, the great, the great works of Greek and Latin coming out all the time. Uh, what, you know, especially mm-hmm. the more well-known ones, um, but also, you know, the, the Theban plays and, and, you know, things, you know, in that, in that range of notoriety. Do you find that that's a, is that a, competitive do you feel like you're competing with with those translators and some of these these big publishing companies that are producing you know new iliads and odysseys and aeneids all the time or do you feel like um you're after something different than what they're after and do you feel like you know you your sort of strong suit is in the lesser known that that sets you apart well we i don't think we do compete um and the more more power to them. i mean i think uh, that the more translations, the better. Yeah. Uh, but but we have a special niche in that we have the facing text, and our translations are then uh, thought to be, and rightly so, I think they're thought to be um, more accurate in the sense that if you are reading the original or you want to read the original. Um, the facing translation and the lobe translation will be more faithful to it than uh, other forms of literary mm. translation. Mm. And plus, we have a lot more authors in the library than than do get translated generally. Uh, many of our volumes are the only English translations available. Mm. So was the digitization of your library a point of contention at all, or did it was it? Did it seem like it was the obvious thing to do? No, it didn't. When I first came on in uh, 1999, officially I started as a general editor, I tried to talk to the then executive trustee and the press about digitizing the library, and they didn't want to do it. Uh, They thought that it would cannibalize the print volumes and that it couldn't be done technically the way they would want it done and um, for other reasons they just didn't feel like it Um, but in about 10 years or so around 2008 uh, we had a change a new a new executive director and uh, the press warmed to the idea more and technically it was more feasible then so Mm. the foundation and the press went in together on this uh, funding digitizing the library and uh, getting it online because HTML5 allows a much better product than really would have been capable, we would have been capable of yeah. 10 years before. So mm-hmm. it worked out okay. And the online version is got its glitches, but, uh, but we're working on them. And I think that uh, love classical library online um, version two is going to be a lot better. We're working on that now. Mm. Um, but now, you know, Loeb wanted the volumes to be of a size that could fit, fit in a in a coat pocket, and now the whole library can fit on an iPhone. Yeah. So it's yeah, 
and you can look, look at any author and search them all. And the fear that the online library would cannibalize the print has not come to pass. In fact, it's helping the library because people who search for things discover volumes and authors that they never heard of, but they're interested in. Mm. So what we're seeing as a result of the online library is a, an increase in purchases of volumes that didn't do very well before. Mm. Because su- people didn't know about them, they didn't see them in the bookstore. I suppose that there is a, a degree to which many of the people who are subscribers or who are interested in being subscribers that then subscribe to the digital library are just sort of by nature book lovers anyway. And so then they're going to begin to, you know, if, if they sign up and then they're not sure if they want to buy the book, but then they realize the value of the, the volumes, they're going to start saying, well, I want these, you know, on my shelves too. I want these to lend, lend to people and, you know, be part yep. of my, my book collection. And, you know, book collection says a lot yep. about who we want to be. So, <laughs> yeah. And it's cool. You know, uh, the reds and the greens look good and yep. uh, they're sort of fun. They're great conversation top and they're very cheap considering they're good books, well-made and yet 26 bucks. I mean, that's uh, nothing nowadays. Yeah. Uh, and you can get on the online version for $60 a year, which again is a really huge bargain. Hmm. I was thinking the other day how I remember being probably hmm, 10 years old maybe. And I think the first real book I ever bought was a Loeb uh, version of Caesar's Civil Wars. And I remember being in a Barnes and Noble with my dad and I, and I have that, I, I was looking for it and I found it on the shelf and, you know, it's easy to find. And it's got, I don't think it, I think probably as a kid somewhere along the way, I lost the uh, dust jacket part of it, but the paper cover, but it's got that, <laughs> you know, the beautiful red binding with the gold embossed lettering and, um, it, they're so recognizable. And I still have that book. It's got, it's, I wrote in it and I was, my, terrible 10 year old cursive that I got it from my I used birthday money on it. And it's, it's just interesting how those things that when you buy a book, like they, these sorts of books, books that you collect, that you take some pride in, it really imprints itself on your memory too. And even the the reading of them, oh, yeah. you know, that's wonderful. Yeah. No, I still have my first load that I bought, which was Catullus. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's really beat up. I don't have the dust track anymore either. Um, <laughs> But it, it's fun to look at my boyhood signature in it and, and little notes that I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you, do you, um, has there been any debate about changing the look and feel at all? Because I imagine that in, well, maybe not, but it seems like a lot of presses now are, are, you know, they're trying to give us that look of, of an old book in some ways, but you've kind of had that not in an old, that like it's dingy and falling apart, but there's something very classic about, you know, the production of the books. Is there a certain, I mean, has there ever been conversation about altering that or is that pretty much, you know, this is what we're going to get until, you know, books no longer exist and we're all, you know, six feet under. There has been. Uh, When Harvard Press decided to go forward with uh, uh, Itachi Renaissance Library and the Dumbarton Oaks Medieval Library, they thought maybe this is the time to regularize all of the bilingual libraries and make them a little bigger and, and make the lobe bigger. Uh, but the foundation, the trustees, didn't want to do that because Loeb specified that that's how the books were going to look and feel, mm. period. And, and, and so it wasn't really legal uh, for them to change it. And the trustees could have voted to do it, but they didn't. And I, I think that's right. I think uh, 
that the library needs to be the way it is, the size it is. It's quite a challenge uh, to produce volumes that, especially nowadays when we're increasing the scholarly uh, dimensions of the volumes with more annotation, footnotes, uh, indexes, and things like that, um, that the small size of the pages is inhibits us from, we have to be very creative making use of that small yeah. real estate. Yeah. But we managed to do it. It's amazing what how much information you can get on those little pages. Uh, it's, it's truly amazing. When we digitized it, we hired the company to um, to help us with putting it online and, and doing the tagging. Uh, they couldn't believe it. They said, this is the most complicated work that we've ever done. Who, <laughs> who buys books like this? Do you really need all this? What is all this? Uh, and they couldn't, you know, some of the problems were very severe. And that's why it's still rather hard to navigate um, because every classical author has its own reference mm. uh, standard. And you have, um, you know, lots of moving parts and marginalia and maps and yeah. footnotes and, uh, you know, so getting that all online with the look and feel of the volumes in a simple way was not easy. And still, the tagging of the library to make it, you know, to go where you want to get very quickly is taking a huge amount of money and lots of time. Yeah. <laughs> because you, you need to be a classicist to know how to navigate this. In Galen, Again, there are three different reference systems for Galen texts. So people who search that are going to look for one, two, or three different places in in the Greek text. And then all of that has to be anchored to the English translation page number. Um, and you have to make it uh, scalable on all the devices and so forth. So mm. it's a it's a trick. Hmm. Do you feel like, I mean, is, are there other methods to to replicating the, the feel of reading a low book, like the actual physical book. Um, I know you can't fully replicate it, but was that, was that something you were after as well when you were digitizing that you want to at least, I mean, whether it's typography yeah. or the kerning or all that kind of, that kind of thing, was that something you were trying to replicate? Yes. We wanted to have a book open on your screen and to have a metaphor of pages still rather than continuous text. Mm-hmm. And uh, and really, that's turned out to be well. I think people like using it. And, um, you know, we, in BU, my school, uh, has a subscription, university-wide subscription, so all of our students can log on for free to the long library. Mm-hmm. And in my classes, I tell them, you know, you, don't, you can either buy the book, because we use them for textbooks sometimes, you can either buy the book or go online and use it if you want to save the money. But almost all the students end up buying it. But they say, we, we like to have these little books. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. just fun. They're fun to read. And it's much easier to read them when you have the book. Then. So they even though it costs them money, they tend to want to buy the book. I think there's something about, you know, when you're working in translation or studying translation, being able to just even mark up, you know, comparative lines and things like that, I think probably makes a big difference yeah. for students. Absolutely. It's much more physical. 
what yeah. is, I have a question about typography because I know your your fonts, you know, and, and even the, the the seal or the logo has kind of evolved over time. I think that was it the early '90s, something like that, when the when they did, designed a new font it was before your time there, right? Yeah, I was just coming on at that time, and I I was at the party where uh, I think it was 1998 that we okay. unveiled the new font, the Zestext font. Yeah, so. Is that, I mean, that's one of the, I feel like that's one of the things that can, maintains the sort of classic feel of these books. If I open one that was, you know, printed or, you know, in 2017 or something in a Barnes and Noble, um, it, it feels the same as you, as mm-hmm. one from 1971 or 1950. In fact, here at our office, we've got some that were printed a couple of years ago, I believe, or pretty recently, and some that are from the 70s and 80s and some that are from earlier. And it's, I really have to hunt down the differences. You know, I, I've, I've been able to sort of notice some of the differences in the, in the, the Greek and the Latin in terms of the typography. And mm-hmm. I can look at the print date, but it's kind of fun to try to guess. But it, that, that sort of classic feel seems to make them somewhat indistinguishable. Is that something that you're trying to preserve? Or is that why you do that? Or do you see, that that, do you see the fonts evolving, continuing to evolve over time and sort of um, make them look a little bit more modern? Or do you... Is it important to you as the editor that they look, um, one, like they used to look a long time ago, but also that they have that sort of classic appeal to them? Absolutely. I think we always wanted to uh, make the the digital version of the font as much like the classic Logue font as we could. Um, but we had to make a new font because of digitizing production. Uh, right. Right. And Greek, Greek was uh, a challenge. I bet. Um, uh, because it, uh, well, just where do I start? I mean, uh, <laughs> Greek letters. <laughs> Greek letters. Uh, you have to, uh, when you're typesetting them by hand, you can kern them and do things. Uh, printers know how to do things like that, but digitally, right. you have to make every character dynamic so that it will properly space itself depending on what letters are on either side of it because greek tilts a little bit and uh uh, the shapes of the letters will not look good a printer can make them look good but uh in digital it's it it was a nightmare getting them uh to look good and i had a question i don't think had ever been answered in history uh the photographer said uh just tell me which Greek letters never stand next to other Greek letters, because <laughs> I don't want to waste. I don't want to make waste my time making the beta look good with a tau if they never are together. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you know, this took me like a week to figure this out, and uh, it was more complicated than I thought because in regular words. Sometimes the letters never stand together, but in numbers and mm. abbreviations and epigraphical conventions, sometimes they do. Um, and that has to do with whether they're capital or or small letters, you know. So this this became very complicated. <laughs> but I think we got it right. It looks good. But this is something that wouldn't wouldn't even have occurred to a printer because they'd say, "Well, we'll make it look good, whatever it is." But um, but in a digital font, all the fonts have to be ready to go in right. whatever. Uh, so we finally got that. And we're still working. We used uh, – it's a Unicode font, so we have 
um, you know, is compatible. This F font is compatible with any other Unicode font, but still, um, there's some places in the font that we have to do things that aren't in there already. So, hmm. do you? I mean, do you just lay everything out through InDesign now? Uh, no, we're still finding things. Uh, some of the new volumes, the authors want characters that haven't been in the library before. Um, huh. So we have to invent them. Every year there's a little handful of new characters that we need to put in the font. Huh. That, so do you, that, that, that's fascinating. I, so, so you almost have like an evolving font library, <laughs> character yeah. library. Yeah. Last year was really bad because for the first time we published uh, an edition that had uh, m- more than Latin and Greek. It had Aramaic, and, hmm. uh, Arabic, Syriac. Uh, so we had to put, that was the early Greek uh, philosophy. Hmm. Um, and we decided to publish the original Arabic versions of some of these things. So we had to put Arabic in. Hmm. Man, so is this, how much of this are you overseeing on a day-to-day basis? Is this, I mean, are you having to make decisions about this stuff all the time or do you at least have a team of people who can uh, can help you out with that? Well, we're a very small operation. I'm yeah. the only editor. I don't have other, I don't have a board or advisors or anything. I do it. This is sort of typical of low editors. And... Uh, I, I have an executive trustee who's a classicist, and he and I uh, make all decisions about, well, pretty much all decisions. Um, on the technical side, I have a uh, classicist who works for the press, who's a managing editor for the Loeb at the press. Um, so he he's the one that uh, translates what we want to do for the press. And he oversees the day-to-day operation of the digital library. Um, and we work together. Uh, you know, things that, that have a classical professional implication, I usually rule on them. Yeah. Now, technical issues, Mike will tell me whether or not we can do that or whether it's a good idea to do that. Right. Uh, and then we have our typesetters, uh, wonderful uh very high-end typesetters in Merrimack, Massachusetts, um, who published the books and have been doing that all along for Harvard Press. Mm. And uh, so in in very difficult situations, I'll uh, consult with them or even go up to Merrimack and spend a day ashing out problems. Mm. So there's there's a... You know, what you're describing is a sort of artistic process as much as an editorial process. And, you know, I suppose anytime you're designing a book, let alone a, a book like the Lo- in the Loeb Library, there's a certain artistry that goes into it. But do you have to, um, do you feel like it's different parts of your brain, so to speak, or your, I don't know, if, I don't want to say your profession, but but you're, do you have to approach that sort of artistic side of things differently than you do when you're working as an editor or when you are working in translation um, and pr- kind of pr- working it line by line through a, through a text? That's a wonderful question. You know, that's true. Um, there is lobe time 
that I get into a, a a state, you know, of you know, contemplating what Loeb would have wanted and and mm. how to make the whatever it is look good and fit in the library and um, yeah, I mean, it's a it, there is an artistic side to it, and and uh, you do have to allow time for that. It, it can come at any moment. Uh, and I work with the authors as they're progressing, check in with them. We have an online program called Genesis, which is a um, a uh, customized version of Microsoft Word for Windows that exists on a server run by our typesetters. And authors who are technologically competent and who want to work on Genesis, um, we can put for them files of their volume. If it's a revision or a replacement, we can put the original volume up there pre-formatted for them. Or if they, we would just create files for them that automatically format for load formatting and they can work online. And I can go in and see them. Um, I, I can go in and see what they're doing. I can help them with things we can work on problems together. We have about 20 authors now working in Genesis. Hmm. Um, authors who are working in the conventional way, who are just going to spend years doing what they do, occasionally ask a question and then send me a manuscript at the end. I don't know what they're doing. And, <laughs> do you, and do they, you like that? And when they, I, you know, I'd rather have them work on Genesis, but uh, it's not easy. And, and a lot of people don't want to work online because they, they can't just download the files and work on them. They have to work online. So mm. no, some of them don't want like that, especially the older ones. But uh um but when I get a manuscript in the conventional way, then it, it we put it on Genesis anyway. Um that's now become our way of uh mounting volumes and getting them ready for WordPress. So uh I can actually look over the shoulders of authors and and um, work on formatting from the get-go. I mean, instead of waiting for what are we going to do with this manuscript? Uh, right, right. Uh, by the time when the author's done on Genesis, they just say, I'm finished. And that's it. There's no further copy editing stages or anything. It's ready to be uh, prepared for publication right there. So I, I really like to do that because then you can settle the problems, you know, as they arise. How long does it take to finish a volume? So from the time you commission it to the time it goes to the market? <laughs> well, one guy's been working for thirty years. Oh, and that's not well, that's not unusual. <laughs> I I inherited him. Okay. Uh, we don't hurry them. You know, we have we give them a contract and they specify a due date. Then if they're not ready by then, uh, then we extend the due date. And uh, very, very rarely do we say enough is enough. Uh, we're going to go to somebody else. It Very rarely. We sort of stick with people until they're ready because uh, we know it's hard to do. And uh, it's usually not the first thing on people's plate. You know, these are good scholars that we get now and, and they have various other things to be working on. Uh, so we wait. Um, so some of them are finished very fast. 
uh, a year or two on a volume. But usually it's five or six years. Hmm. How long from then to the time that it's you know on bookshelves? Uh, really right away. We have two seasons, fall and spring. Uh, manuscripts that, that come in by the end of July, we can publish them in the spring. And if they come in by New Year's, we can publish them in the fall. It's very quick once they come in. Do you have any any um, current fall volumes that are uh, you're particularly excited about? Uh, anything coming? I mean, not that you want to throw any of your translators under the bus, I'm sure, but <laughs> yeah. Well, we have um, yeah a lot of things coming. Uh, we have um, new Catullus, and we have more uh, Galen. Um, and we have uh, Callimachus, and that's a big one. Um, we have fragmentary Republican Latin, and that's going to be all the Roman literature from the Republican era that doesn't survive complete. And that'll probably be at least 13 volumes of that. Mm, mm. Uh, but there's some interesting people there that don't get read very much. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and we're redoing Livy. Hmm. When was the last uh, time that was done? Well, that took 40 years originally. Uh, that went on and on for decades. Um, but we have half of it now done. Uh, two decades of the four surviving. Um, and I'm very excited about that. That's a really good addition. Hmm. Um, the author, John Yardley, uh, is a, a great Livian, and um, he's almost finished with, with what he agreed to do. But he he originally wanted to do um, Justin, and we made him wait until he did Livy. We said, you know, if if you did if you do Livy, then you can do Justin. So uh, he's very excited to get started on Justin. It's amazing that he agreed, and that's maybe why he's done it so quickly. <laughs> he wants to get what he likes. So. How many uh, volumes did you do release each spring? So, season, I mean, each season, sorry. So, fall, autumn, you said fall, fall and spring, right? Yeah. Uh, we try to do between two, two and five. Okay. Um, I think four is, is the sweet spot. And that's, that's rather hard to get four out. But um, if we're ready, we're ready. Um, but it's, it's usually two or three. Well, I kept you longer than I said I would. <laughs> um, thank you. That's perfectly fine. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you for your time. And where should people, if if people who are in our audience want to discover more about uh, Loeb, where is the best, like for you guys, where is the best place to buy the Loeb Classics? Is it from your website? Is it at a bookstore, Amazon? What's the best place for people to buy your, from your library? Amazon's fine. Amazon's okay. fine. Uh, and Amazon, you can buy used ones. Uh, and on the Harvard University website is uh, Harvard University Press website. It's very easy there. But it's sort of like Apple products. It's always the same amount if you buy them new. <laughs> right, yeah. And what about for the digital uh, the digital library? Where should people go to subscribe to that or, or sign up for that, however, however that works? Again, the Harvard Press website. Okay. Very easy. So you have, um, you, and you have every, how, how, what percentage of the volumes are digitized now? Well, all of them are. 
Okay, so you've, you've completed that job then, except for the ones that are coming. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Wow, that's great. All, all of the, it is, um, especially for the Greek, because you can't scan Greek. We had to have the Greek, all the Greek in the library hand entered. Mm. Um, Man. And that was an interesting <laughs> process because it's, you know, we had to have it over 99% accurate. And we finally hired a company that had an ingenious idea. They had three operators who did not know Greek do the whole thing. And the computer discarded any error that only one of them made. Um, so uh, presumably not more than one would make the same error. Uh, but, you know, there are a whole bunch of times when two or three of them made the same error. Uh, so we have that information, and one of my retirement projects is to look at that and see what the errors are, because I also work in uh, paleography and textual criticism, and one of the interesting features of manuscript work is what sort of errors do scribes make? Um, why do they? Why do the scribes that are copying things exactly make mechanical errors? So... Um, this is a great, this has all of the low Greek in it um, with versions, modern versions of medieval scribes uh, copying things and making errors. So um, hmm. I, I want to look at that just to, just for curiosity. But yeah, we have all the volumes up. And um, as I say, when a volume is replaced, the replacement goes up and the other one is removed. So, uh, and they're not archived. So, uh, those are lost. Well, again, thank you very much for talking to me about this. The, I, I've always loved the low classics. My dad had, I don't know, uh, maybe a hundred of them around at our house growing up. And, um, that's wonderful. And, and then they would come and go, someone would mail him new ones and then he'd blown them out and never hear from them again or something. But then we <laughs> someone delivered some to our office here, a big box of, of uh, many of the authors were, um, authors that I was only, I only knew their name, you know, I'd never really read them in school or whatever. So there were a lot of, a lot of, uh, especially the Greek ones of very, I don't, rare, I don't know. I don't know if they're actually rare, but they were, you know, I didn't know them. So that was pretty neat to have those delivered. I guess someone was clearing out a estate library or something and just dropped us off boxes and boxes of them. So those are stacked everywhere in our office. <laughs> they're just, they're That's so great. fun to have around. <laughs> and look where you turned up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, again, thank you for your time. And uh, I'm sorry that I kept you a little bit long and uh, best of luck with your continued work with, with the library and with all your um, continued uh, editing and translating. I, I, it sounds like you enjoy it, though. I do. I do a lot. Well, that's a, that's a great place to be. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, if you... I'll, I'll send you a link when we have some of this posted and uh, I'll be sure to post links to where people can find more about, uh, about the library and purchase and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully this is useful for you as well. Great. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.